Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, crime wave politics are a time-honored response to political movements that take on racist policing in this country, dating back at least to Barry Goldwater, as organizer Josmar Trujillo was reminding us back in 2015. But here we are again, as outlets like the New York Times announce a reported rise in the murder rate with coverage steeped in false presumptions about what that means and how to respond. Our guest says prepare to hear a lot about how police need more resources because crime is surging and offers antidote to that propaganda. We'll hear from Alec Karakatsanis, executive director of Civil Rights Corps and author of the book Usual Cruelty, The Complicity of Lawyers in the Criminal Injustice System. Also on the show, while we're to understand that police could prevent crime, if only they're permitted, we're also asked to accept that the most powerful law enforcement in the country just somehow couldn't manage to prevent Olympic gymnast team doctor Larry Nassar from sexually assaulting dozens of young women, even after they'd been alerted. FBI actions around Nassar went beyond mere negligence, falsifying testimony, pressuring witnesses. But to actually address that, we'll need to acknowledge systemic indifference to gender-based crime. Jane Manning, director of the Women's Equal Justice Project, joins us to talk about that. That's coming up. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. New York Times readers have seen a couple of stories recently about a reported rise in the country's murder rate. Among the top driving forces, readers were told, quote, increased distrust between the police and the public after the murder of George Floyd, including a pullback by the police in response to criticism, close quote. But reference to the unsupported, inflammatory so-called Ferguson effect is only one of the problems with the Times reporting here, which sparked a thoughtful Twitter thread by our next guest. A former civil rights lawyer and public defender, Alec Karikatsanis is founder and executive director of Civil Rights Corps and author of the book Usual Cruelty, The Complicity of Lawyers in the Criminal Injustice System. He joins us now by phone from Washington, D.C., Welcome to Counterspin, Alec Karakatsanis. Thank you so much for having me. Well, there's some overlap in the problems in the September 22nd story bylined Jeff Asher and then the September 27th Neil McFarquhar piece on what's called a murder spike in cities across the U.S. But maybe start with Asher's as it originally ran, because that's relevant, what was so wrong and so troubling about that report? There are a number of concerns. I think that the most obvious and simple concern to highlight first is that Asher has a long history, first working at the CIA, then working sort of covertly with Palantir, the CIA venture capital-backed tech firm that works with police departments, military and defense contractors, and also uh, ICE and, and other uh, sort of carceral entities 
on a wide range of both public and secret programs. And then he went on to found a, what appears to be a lucrative sort of private consulting business where he worked for the New Orleans Police Department and, and Palantir together on, on a very controversial secret program that even many elected officials in New Orleans didn't know about. And then he consulted for the prosecutor's office in New Orleans. None of this history or these conflicts of interest, both financial and journalistic, were even mentioned by the Times, who allowed him a column in, in the upshot section of the Times as if he were some kind of neutral data expert, just mm-hmm. telling people about objective, neutral data about crime in the United States. That's a first problem. Yeah. The second problem is just Asher repeats many of the problems that we see in Times coverage generally. Wild speculation about the connection between police and things like murder. It reminds me a lot of climate denial back in the 90s and early 2000s. It reminds me a lot of the coverage leading up to the Iraq war. Things are just asserted. And because they're just asserted commonly every single day in paper after paper and news outlet after news outlet, things can become normalized. And what would be a radical anti-science fringe view that let the police determine murder rates. By the way, you know, the scientific consensus is pretty overwhelming things like murder rates and harm in our society are much more correlated with poverty, inequality, mental illness, drug addiction, lack of access to decent health care and housing and jobs, lack of social cohesion, and in particular, toxic masculinity is, is one that's often left out of these explanations. But a lot of violence is intimate partner violence committed by men. And none of these things are things that the police are connected with. And in fact, almost all of them are things that over the course of the last hundred years, police have systematically organized to prevent progressive social change in each one of these areas of crushing and infiltrating and surveilling every major social movement for justice. None of that background is given in any of these time pieces. You're sort of told that the murder rate is skyrocketing, and, and Asher used a number of very misleading graphs to make people think that murder is extraordinarily high when it's at near 30, 40, 50-year lows even though there was an increase in murder during the beginning of the global pandemic, which caused a lot of mental health issues in people, and there's many other explanations. But the bigger context is that it's just seen as totally normal in the New York Times and in the media generally to talk about murder and then right away pivot to talking about explanations that deal with the police when we all know that things that correlate with murder are things that are much more profound features of our society. Well, and one of the ways that they create that just implicit understanding that more police equals less crime. First, crime's very scary, and the response is more police. Well, it has to do with who they talk to, right? Who gets to speak in the context of the reporting. One of the stunning things about both Asher's piece and the piece by Neil McFarquhar, which in many ways was worse, because not only did it quote almost exclusively police and police-paid consultants, but it also then quoted Asher as an expert on this issue without, again, noting any of his conflicts of interest. Just several days after Asher himself had written that problematic article in The Times, I think one of the really key things that you never see in this reporting is an acknowledgement that the concept of crime is sort of defined and constructed by police and other elite interests in our society. So, for example, police crime data on which all of these articles are based does not include the crimes committed by the police. And in my analysis of these studies and in using what I think are reasonable estimates, I think if you actually included the crimes committed by police, it would entirely reverse the crime trends in most major U.S. cities. That's just one very minor example. 
Other things that are just not included here are the several hundred thousand violations of the Clean Water Act every single year. They're not reported in local crime data. Wage theft, fraudulent overdraft fees by banks. You know, wage theft alone by corporate employers dwarfs all burglary, theft, shoplifting, and all property crimes combined by a factor of about five. So we're talking about 50 to $100 billion a year in wage theft. It's not treated as a crime. It's not reported in local crime data. It's not part of a so-called crime surge narrative. And so I could give you, you know, and I have in some of my writing, hundreds of these kinds of examples of what the police count as crime and what they don't. And you never really provided that kind of context and background when the New York Times talks about things like a crime wave. One of the lines in the McFarquhar piece that stood out to me was he says, some argue that the police, under intense scrutiny and demoralized, pulled back from some aspects of crime prevention. Others put the emphasis on the public, suggesting that diminished respect for the police prompted more people to try to take the law into their own hands. Now, when I read that, I hear either black people need police to protect them from themselves or black people need police to protect them from themselves. It's presented as... It's a range of views here, but, uh, you know, it's not really a range of perspectives, and there are a lot of perspectives missing from that. Absolutely. I mean, it's a classic media technique, which you know, I think is described really beautifully in Chomsky's Manufacturing Consent. It's you make people think that there are two sides having a very reasonable debate. And by limiting the debate to those two views and excluding everything else from the debate, you make it seem like... There's a very narrow range of views, and all reasonable people either think that the police are a really great crime prevention tool and that they've pulled back from that in the last year, or that civil rights criticism of the police is what's causing the uptick in murders. And I think it's fascinating to think about what's going on in the heads of these journalists. I know because I've corresponded with McFarquhar, although he's never responded to any of my attempts to ask him questions about his prior journalism, but I know that he knows there are other views. And so when a journalist writes something like, some people say this, but others say that, but then excludes what they know many, many, many other people, including every rigorous scientist who studies the causes and underlying nature of crime, you have to wonder what is the agenda there? And, and that's why I thought it was particularly striking that McFarquhar and the editors chose not to disclose some of the conflicts of interest that the experts they were citing had. And I know that Jeff Asher just blocked you when you tried to uh, communicate with him or engage with him about his piece. Well, I, I did want to give you a chance finally, although the time is inadequate, but also in that McFarquhar piece was the claim And it had been in the earlier piece, but got maybe taken out on a second version. But there was the claim sourced to an officer, a particular law enforcement officer. He cited what they called the revolving jailhouse door created by bail reform as a factor driving up violence. And again, there was a tacked on, but others differ at the end of that sentence. But the sentence... The statement of the sentence was that law enforcement believe that the revolving jailhouse door created by bail reform is a problem here. So in our remaining couple of minutes, can you address some of the mythology around bail reform? There is so much wrong with that. It's hard to know where to start. First, it's asserted that there's this revolving jailhouse door. And then what he says there's a dispute about is whether the revolving jailhouse door has led to more crime. Now, I I just want to note, I don't even know what a revolving jailhouse door is, but it, it highlights one of the 
key ways in which media furthered mass incarceration by creating this imagery of like an out of control super predator class, this vivid imagery like um, a crime wave, right, is designed to make people feel like there's this overwhelming force coming at them. The same is true with revolving door. What is the point of using a metaphor like that? It doesn't actually accurately describe anything about what's going on in the legal system. There's no evidence or support or description given for what's meant by that. What they're actually referring to is that in some places, consistent with all of the empirical evidence, which shows that detaining people prior to their trial in cages, just because they can't make a monetary payment, actually increases crime by huge margins for years in the future, because it makes people more likely to commit crime by destabilizing their lives, getting them out of treatment and mental care and losing their jobs and their housing and many times losing their children. This is the scientific consensus we're talking about. Cash bail is actually really harmful to public safety. So what they're talking about is a series of very modest, pretty minor reforms which reduce the tension of very poor people solely because they can't pay. Those reforms still allow police, prosecutors, and judges to detain anyone that they prove is a danger to the community or a risk of flight or is charged with a really serious offense. So it's just also, it's so hard to know where to begin because basically every single aspect of what you just read, from the assumptions to the assertions to the implications, is just completely fabricated and not consistent at all with what's actually happening and what we know the data says about cash bail. Well, we'll direct folks to civilrightscore.org as a way to follow up on some of that information, as well as your book. We've been speaking with Alec Karakatsanis of Civil Rights Corps. The book, Usual Cruelty, the Complicity of Lawyers in the Criminal Injustice System, is out from the new press. And I thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin, Alec Karakatsanis. Thank you so much. Among many disturbing things about the story of Gabby Petito, the young woman whose disappearance and murder captured widespread attention, was the indication that Utah police had not taken seriously an incident in which Petito's fiancé was reported slapping and shoving her. The police department says they're investigating. The FBI, too, says it's investigating its actions in the grievous mishandling of the Larry Nassar case, of which the Justice Department has just delivered a damning account. Nassar being the Olympic gymnast team doctor who sexually abused numerous young women, dozens of them after multiple women had reported him to authorities. The theme is hard to miss. Survivors of sexual assault are dismissed, dehumanized, and denied at every turn, not just by individuals, but by, as Simone Biles noted, entire systems. Our next guest works on the front line of this set of issues. Jane Manning is director of the Women's Equal Justice Project, which helps survivors of sexual assault navigate the criminal justice system. She joins us now by phone from the Bronx. Welcome to Counterspin, Jane Manning. Thank you so much, Janine. Well, the Larry Nasser case, which you wrote about for the September 27th New York Times, seems emblematic in that people might think the agency dragged their feet or didn't do all they might have. But it's not just negligence. And then also a decision not to do something is an action, is a choice, and, and one that seems to get made again and again. You're so 
right about that. I, I love the way you just put that, Janine, that the decision not to do anything is a choice. That's right. I mean, we live in a legal regime, right? So the state has what's called a monopoly of force. So if you're raped or battered, you're not allowed to take a gun and go settle the score for yourself, right? We look to the justice system to provide accountability and justice for survivors and also to provide protection to the rest of society from future violent offenses. And so when the justice system refuses to act in cases of gender-based violence, sexual assault, domestic violence, stalking, human trafficking, they are effectively depriving women and other groups that are targeted for gender-based violence, LGBTQ survivors and other marginalized groups. They are effectively depriving us of safety and of the equal protection of the law. The fact that mishandling of assault cases and gender-based crime cases so often pairs with mistreatment or demeaning treatment of survivors, that just highlights the depth of the problem in the system. That's exactly right. One of the survivors who came to me for help told me that when she went in to be interviewed by a detective after she was raped, the detective's first question to her was, how often have you cheated on your husband? Oh uh, another survivor said to me, that her detective said to her, you know, are you really sure you want this guy arrested? You know, who knows, you could end up dating this guy. Mm. And the survivor said to me, when I heard him say that, I asked myself, how can I possibly get an unbiased investigation from this detective? And she was right. The detective went on to do a very shoddy, minimal investigation of her case and then close it down while there were a lot of investigative leads still unpursued. So it's, so it's both of these issues. It's the demeaning treatment, but it's also the failure to investigate, the failure to prosecute, the failure to take action. And both of those things really impact survivors. Another part of the Gabby Petito media phenomenon was folks calling out the relative inattention given to disappearances and even killings of black and brown women, Native American women. In your piece for the Washington Post back in May, you noted how racism and sexism are intertwined here. I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what those intersections can mean, can look like in terms of criminal justice and sexual assault. That's exactly right. So this kind of law enforcement inattention to gender-based violence cuts across various intersecting forms of inequality. So when police agencies refuse to investigate gender-based violence, sexual assault, for example, that has a disproportionate impact on all women. It has a disproportionate impact on all LGBTQ communities, but it has a particular impact for the most marginalized women, the most marginalized survivors. So women and girls and survivors in communities of color, in communities that are facing poverty, in Native and Indigenous communities, so disabled survivors. All of these groups that face more than one form of social oppression, so gender and race, or gender and disability, or survivor status and poverty, these intersecting forms of oppression often combine to make it even harder for a survivor to receive justice or even to feel like that survivor can go to the system and report 
in the first place. And one thing I just want to say about this, Janine, is that for so many of our communities, the level of frustration with policing has become so high that some people with the best of intentions are saying, you know what, maybe we should just forget about trying to fix the police response and maybe we should just concentrate on healing and therapy for survivors. And I, and I just want to say very strongly that that is not the option that the survivors who come to me want. So the survivors of every race and class who come to my organization, they want a police response. They have experienced on the most physical firsthand level the violence of gender-based assault, and they want those perpetrators held accountable criminally. And what I want to say about that is that what those survivors want is not too much to ask. It is not too much to say that we deserve police and prosecutor agencies that do not engage in racial profiling, that do not deter survivors of color from coming forward because of justified fears of police brutality, but at the same time that do take sexual assault and gender-based violence seriously and will come to the aid of survivors who report those crimes. It is not too much to ask that we can have intersectional justice in the space where right now we have intersectional oppression. I appreciate that. I I would imagine that some proponents of restorative justice would say it's a more expansive thing than just therapy for survivors, you know. But at the same time, I, I appreciate how you say this is the system we have and people have a right to expect this system to work for them the same way that it that it works for others. And in that Washington Post piece, you say there's a trap for survivors of color who mm-hmm. who may fear that if they report assaults, they're going to bring down profiling and excessive force on their own communities. And that's a real and, as you say, justified concern. It's a concern that deters many women of color, particularly black women, from going to the police in the first place. Well, that piece in The Washington Post is about how just the very fact of how over-policing and under-protection fit together are, are of a piece. So, so if we can understand that fact, what could we change tomorrow that would push the system in the direction it needs to go? And maybe then what, what longer-term work is needed? This is a great question. So the oppressions go together, and in many ways, the solutions can go together, too. So I'm going to talk about a couple of things. I'm going to talk about training. I'm going to talk about funding, and I'm going to talk about the role of the Justice Department. So in terms of training, we do need training that enables our police officers to engage the community in ways that are supportive and protective and not confrontational. So the current culture of almost a militarized approach to policing, that is not the inevitable face of policing. That is the consequence of police being armed with military-style weapons and trained in military-style tactics by leadership that have chosen those approaches. And a different approach is possible, one that prioritizes de-escalation and a public service approach to policing. And that public service approach could also apply and should also apply to the way a rape survivor is met when she enters a police precinct. That this is not somebody to be seen as a burden and a hassle. That this is the very core of your mission as a police officer is to respond to someone like this. So part of it is training and culture change. But there also needs to be the accountability for police officers who don't live up to those cultural ideals. And that accountability has to 
start at the top. I mean, here in New York City, we have Police Commissioner Dermot Shea, who presided over just brutal crackdowns over last summer on peaceful protesters in the Black Lives Matter movement, but has also systematically understaffed and under-equipped the Special Victims Unit. So we talk about how police are funded. We need to not just oversee how much the police get, but we also need to oversee what do they do with the money that we give them. We need less police resources spent on arresting people for nonviolent crimes like loose cigarettes and more police resources allocated to thorough and victim-centered investigations of rape. So those are changes that we can make in the way that we oversee police agencies and the demands that we make of them. And then finally, I'll just say that what my piece says is that the Biden administration's Justice Department is investigating racial bias and excessive force in policing, and those investigations are much needed. But one thing the Obama administration did was they incorporated into those investigations the intersecting issues faced by women and girls and survivors, often women and girls and survivors of color, who find that underprotection that goes right along with, with the over-policing and the excessive force. For whatever reason, the Biden DOJ has not taken that intersectional approach to their Justice Department investigations. It's a huge mistake, and part of why I wrote the piece is to call on them to bring that intersectional perspective into the Justice Department's work. Well, believe it or not, I have a final question. Um, uh-huh. Finally, uh, years ago, you might read a headline, he loved her too much when a yes. man killed his wife or girlfriend. I, I'm not sure you'd see that today. You know, today asking what was she wearing in a rape case is considered a faux pas. You know, we like to think our understanding of sexual assault in particular has advanced culturally And it has, but I don't think a new day has really dawned. (laughs) Um, In terms of media, which can so influence public opinion and public policy, are there still myths or misunderstandings about gender-based crimes and the criminal justice system that you see as obstructions? Oh, absolutely. And one of those is the idea that we have to choose between a criminal justice response and a holistic response. And and you know what? I'll take ownership of you were right to call me a few minutes ago on dismissing restorative justice as just confined to therapy for the survivor. You're, you're right. It is a more holistic process than that. And at the same time, the survivors I know would be the first to say, or many of them would be the first to say, it is not appropriate for every offender and it is not therapeutic process for every survivor. So you're, mm-hmm. there, there's so much more to say about the restorative of justice process of course. Than, than what I just said. And yet, for those survivors who want a criminal justice response, we can do both. We can have holistic approaches that pursue therapy and healing and prevention within our communities. And at the same time, we can demand that for those cases that require a criminal justice response, it be a competent and skillful and diligent and victim-centered one. I'd like to thank you very much. We've been speaking with Jane Manning of the Women's Equal Justice Project. Jane Manning, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you, Janine. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by the Media Watch Group Fair, based in New York. The show's engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thank you for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.